Thanks for tuning in to Mystic Witch. I'm your host, Blue. You can find out more about me at bluejunetarot.com. Mystic Witch is a podcast about magic, divination, and all things supernatural. Hey, Mystic Witches. Today we have witch, occultist, healer, and author, Nicholas Pearson. He draws upon a diverse background in his writings and teachings. Nicholas has been immersed in all aspects of the mineral kingdom for more than 20 years. He began teaching crystal workshops in high school, later studying mineral science at Stetson University while pursuing a degree in music. He worked for several years at the Gillespie Museum home to the largest mineral collection in Southern United States. A certified teacher and practitioner of Yusui Reiki, Nicholas offers new insight into the origins of this Japanese healing practice through his research, seminars, and at conferences worldwide. He teaches Reiki and crystal classes and is the author of six books. Nicholas lives in Orlando, Florida with his partner and photographer, Steven. Welcome, Nicholas. How are you feeling today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I've been looking forward to our chat. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. It's so fun to have people who I'm I'm meeting on online and like kind of just like following their practice and seeing what they're doing and being like, um, would you be interested? Because people want to hear about what you're doing. So what is the magical tool you use most often and how do you use it? Um, I mean, truth be told, if we use kind of like a category rather than a specific one, it would be stones. Um, you know, I use crystals in my my magical practice, my healing practice um, quite a lot. Um, if we want to use maybe a, a more, more classical magical tool, um, then I would probably say at, at this point, I, I use my chalice quite a lot. Um, I've been working a lot with the sort of mysteries of the element of water. Um, and I have a, a, a shrine to uh, one of my favorite water-related deities. And um, I use chalices as, um, you know, receptacles for offerings, as ways to give back to the spirits of the land, um, use them for scrying from time to time. So that's that's kind of the tool I'm, I'm immersing myself in right now. Oh, you scry. It's so hard. I, I can't scry. I've tried many times. <laughs> what, uh, what kind of chalice do you use? Um, I have this earthenware chalice that um, I got when I was a teenager, and it's kind of like the, the glaze on it is all the colors of the ocean, and it just, it really fits. Oh my gosh, I have a brass one, and it's not really conducive to everyday use, so I actually have a, a friend hand-carved a John Lennon wine glass, and that's what I've been using. It's interesting, though, because I keep that glass full of water every day for my house spirits. So I love that you work with water so closely. That's great. Mm. So you said that many people assume that you use crystals in your Reiki practice. And I didn't actually realize until I did a little Googling that this is a much more common misconception than I thought. It makes sense that people would assume with your background in crystals that you would use them in tandem, I suppose. But for our listeners who may not know the difference, can you explain the difference between traditional Reiki and Reiki practitioners that do actually use crystals in their practice? Yeah, so um, you know, just to give you like a, a little bit of my, my Reiki history, I started with a fairly westernized, very 
we'll say new ageified approach to Reiki and it welcomed crystals in uh, one of the classes I took with my original teacher. We talked about making Reiki crystal grids and charging crystals with Reiki. And so those are things that I still use in my sort of general practice. But when I approach Reiki these days, um, having gotten a little bit closer to the heart and soul of the origins of the practice, I like to strip it down to the basics. Um, the beautiful thing about traditional Reiki is that it is a complete system unto itself, and it doesn't require any additional tools to be added. The great thing, though, is that um, Reiki is really malleable. It is, it, it's one of those things that plays well with others. So if you want to use it to support any practice you're working with, whether that's crystals or aromatherapy or color therapy or witchcraft, Reiki is there to offer that kind of support. It is this really wonderful framework, energetically speaking, that can kind of hold those things together. But um, you know, because it is so simple and so whole, it, it doesn't really need any help. So, um, you know, when I see clients, which isn't very often these days, um, if, if people really want crystals and Reiki in the same session, I'm very happy to provide those together. And, um, you know, by and large, for the most part, if people come for Reiki, they just get Reiki. If people come for gemstone therapy, they get that. Um, I'm happy to kind of adapt my practice to the needs of the person on the table. Um, but I, I really love how how deep we can go with something when we strip it down to its roots. I love that. So you said you, you don't really see clients very often. Is, is there a reason for that? There are a whole bunch. I, I travel a whole lot these days uh, to teach. Yeah. So um, the the other part about it is that I don't really have like a, a, a public office to, to meet people in. Um, so, um, you know, it's gotta be someone I know well enough to bring into my home. That makes sense. So crystals have been a gateway tool for us both in esoteric practice as they have been for many people. I, I collected stones for a law lo as long as I can remember. And now I use a form of sortilage in my practice with gemstones called crystal casting, because as you know, they're connected to different seasons, chakras, planets, elements. And so the way they fall tells a great more detail in a reading. Can you tell us how you benefit from using crystals in your practice and how does it intersect with your Reiki practice? So, um, you know, I, I think like my, my whole day is kind of bookended by my, my spiritual practice. When I get up in the mornings, by the time I, I feel like resembling a human being, <laughs> um, I start by kind of assessing where I'm at, Sometimes I'll take a look at some astrological transits. Sometimes I'll just take a mental self-inventory. And then I'll, I'll see like what gemstone tools, if I'm going out into the world, what jewelry, or if I'm going to sit down and, and write, what, what tools do I need by the computer? Um, if I'm going to engage in other practices, what do I need to support me given how I feel the energies of the world at large? And what do I want to accomplish for the day? So I start with those personal tools. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, when I take those those gems off when I empty my pockets or take them off my neck or my, my wrists. Um, you know, I'm kind of giving thanks to the crystals for their support. I want to, you know, I, I always cleanse at the end of every day, whatever stones that I'm carrying. But as far as like uh, specific practices, it'll kind of depend on what's happening throughout the day. I use minerals for just about everything. Um, they, they kind of intersect with every aspect of my life. I use them in my magical and occult praxis. I use them um, you know, in tandem with just about anything you can imagine. I've got my writing rocks. I have my travel rocks. I have my, this is a really rough day rock. So um, <laughs> I, 
I, I really have, you know, my, my path started with crystals when I was about eight and um, I've been collecting ever since. And even before then, I was the little kid who picked up rocks everywhere he went. So, um, you know, I've got a, a pretty big collection these days and I have, a, you know, a really intimate relationship with some of these stones. They have been really trusted friends, advisors, protectors, um, guides along my path. And so, you know, depending on what it is that I'm engaged in, I might go to a different ally in my toolbox to help me with, with that particular moment in time. So you got into stones and you were collecting as a kid as well. What's your first memory with uh, with connecting to a gemstone? You know, I can I can remember very vividly the first kind of like mystical experience I had with with a crystal. Um, I'd been collecting for a few years by that point. I was really in love with things like folklore and fairy tales and word, world mythology. So to see how you know just about every culture in the world has its myths about gemstones that that was like a match made in heaven. But it, it was it was a few years before I really like had this experience that I I I, I couldn't rationalize. I was kind of a, a very sciencey nerd kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been and continue to be. But um, my my first moment was with the very first Lemurian seed crystal I'd ever gotten. It was right when they were brand new on the market, right around the year two thousand. And um, I, I sat down to meditate, and in my hometown in South Florida, I live very close to um, the intercoastal, uh, near the, like the mangrove marshes, and so that was my favorite place to go into nature and just be. And so I brought this little crystal with me, and you know, going into meditation with it, um, my my mental imagery was sharper, was was more vivid than it had ever been, and. Um, you know, the crystal began a dialogue with me in a way that I'd never heard a rock talk before. And that was really the moment that changed my entire, the course of my life, although I didn't know it at the time. Do you ever consider relationships to crystals where they're literally dialoguing with you? Do you consider that to be a form form of animism? Yes and no. I think that there are a lot of conversations that we have with the intelligences around us that are valid and legitimate. And then I also think that there's a fair amount of projection that goes on, like with crystals in particular. Yes, I believe they have a a soul, a consciousness, uh, a vital energy um, that has its own agenda separate to our own. Mm. Um, But crystals are also natural reflectors. And so they can often reflect all the things happening in our psyche back to us. And so it takes a lot of diligence and a lot of self-reflection to be able to separate perceiving what's what's happening outside of us and projecting what's happening within us onto an outside source. And uh, it's it's easy to have a great conversation with your subconscious via a crystal and not even realize that it's your own subconscious talking to you. Wow, thank you. That was a really great answer. Um, I think about this a lot because I am clairsentient and I connect to objects of all kinds, but I do feel like crystals are how I recognize that ability, I guess. And I do think that if it weren't for my relationship, I don't think I would have been aware. You did say before that uh, you do use Reiki in your witchcraft, or it can be used in witchcraft. And I'm really curious about your current work in witchcraft in general, but also would love, I'd love to know more about how you do use Reiki in that capacity. Yeah, so I mean, these days, I 
I generally don't have them as, um, you know, like I don't use Reiki in spellcraft, for example. Uh, but because um, Reiki and the sort of Japanese folk religion, Japanese spirituality out of which it was born, is a very magical experience, it informs my practice of, of magic in my everyday life. Um, so like, for example, if we look at how, how Reiki was born, um, it was a time in Japan when um, there's a lot of cultural uncertainty, a lot of rapid change. Borders had recently been opened. There was a new centralized government. And there was a lot going on that was um, kind of out of the ordinary and people were disconnected from their traditions. So new traditions began to resurge. It's what we call the Shinshu Kyo or the new religious sects or the new religious movements. A couple of different ways we can translate that in English. And um, not all of them were, were full-on religions per se, like Reiki for itself is non-religious. It is deeply spiritual, but non-religious. Um, but when we look at what a lot of those, those practices were centered around, they had a lot to do with uh, empowering individuals in a time when the collective good was greater than the individual good. And that's kind of a, an ongoing theme in Japanese culture. Um, and you know, a lot of them involved things like um, prayer work, healing practices that whether they were hands-on or remote, um, they were they were tools to get us closer to our innate divinity. And you know, my my relationship with my witchcraft is that it is also a, a a set of tools that is oriented towards getting us back into relationship with our innate divinity. So um, you know, when I look at it from that context, um, you know, Reiki and and any spiritual practice are kind of like on parallel tracks to get us to the same direction. Um, lately, a lot of my, my Reiki-related research has been looking at the sort of um, indigenous forms of magical practice, religious practice, shamanistic practice of Japan, to see how those may have informed the, the genesis of Reiki. We can't say that Usui himself was a shaman. We can't say that he practiced anything in particular because he didn't write it down. We don't know these things for certain, but by looking at the overlap um, it has really inspired my magical practice to sort of, um, you know, really embrace this animistic plural view of the divine that the the Japanese worldview has, and um, you know, it's it's given me a lot of food for thought. Um, you know, Japanese sorcery and, and magic is not something that's written about a lot in English, and I haven't, I don't, I don't speak enough Japanese to go over and do primary research myself, but. In, in the little bits that I can get, I, I really find a lot of inspiration there. You really just made me realize that the question I wanted to ask next is a little appropriative, actually, um, because I, I think about this a lot in terms of Reiki. And and bear with me, too, because you said it's, it's not written about in English very often. There's a reason for that. <laughs> and um, I think about it often, though. What if I did energetically charge this candle you know every day for a week i mean i myself am a, a a big proponent of doing the work and doing it diligently um following through on things and sometimes it's you know the, the little workings that we have for little outcomes might not require as much effort but yeah i mean i've got i've got practices that i'll engage in that might involve candle magic and crystal grids um, or maybe, you know, the candles and some astrological timing. And, you know, there's a lot of prep that goes into it. Sometimes it's just internal prep. Sometimes it is external prep. Um, but I, I really do think that we have to commit ourselves to that. Um, you know, if we want to use, use Reiki as part of my spiritual practice, one of the five principles that we have is sort of the, the guiding heart and soul of our practice. And Japanese is gyo o hageme, which means um, 
uh, do your work with diligence, follow through on your practices. Um, you can maybe translate it as, as work hard, but even that is falling short of it. it. It really means to put your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole being into the task at hand. And it's not just the work that we do to clock in from nine to five, it mm. is every bit of our work. Whatever, whatever work we're doing for the world, for ourselves, for our family, for our spiritual community, be present with that and, and be diligent in that. When I charge something with energy, generally speaking, I'm, I'm not mandating which form of energy that might be unless, unless I really need to be very specific. You know, if I'm tapping into um, you know, the mysteries of the element for water, for example, I might try to have a very watery kind of, of energy. But um, you know, the thing that I think will be really helpful in kind of understanding the, the deeper workings of Reiki is that it's not, it's not purely energy, plain and simple. Um, if we look at the, the deeper meaning of what the, the kanji, rei, and ki mean, um, they're not just some sort of universal energy like we often translate in English. That is a pretty decent translation of the word ki, but not the rei part. Um, one way that reiki may actually have been derived is from an expression in Japanese, tenmei chi ki, which literally means the energy of the heavens and of the earth, the energy of the entire cosmos. It's what makes things tick. And it is, it is more a phenomenon than it is a, a wavelength or frequency of energy itself. And so when we practice Reiki Ryoho or Reiki healing method, um, what we are doing is we are coming into harmony with the energies of the heavens and of the earth. And I think there are so many different ways that we connect to these kinds of energies. Um, Reiki itself is a specific system, a specific tradition that is, that is whole and requires no external um, add-ons. So, um, you know, maybe in our witchcraft practice, maybe in meditation, maybe in you know, any other form of spiritual practice we engage in, we have that, that same sort of experience of the phenomena of, of heavens and earth converging within our, our being. Um, and so um, I, I tend to think less about charging things with Reiki and being present with my practice. Okay, thank you. Uh, so how is your study of science, particularly mineral science, improved your spiritual practice? Well, I mean, it's, it's no secret that I'm a science nerd, uh, <laughs> among many other kinds of nerd. Uh, but, um, you know, we talk a lot in magic about um, things like the doctrine of signatures and the, the law of correspondences. And we, we look for ways that particular ingredients will correspond to other energies and other outcomes. So like if you want to manifest love, you use herbs and stones that are related to Venus. But how exactly do we know that they're related to Venus apart from tradition? Um, sometimes by looking at things like formation process, chemical composition, crystal structure, um, when we look at the, the geological science of, of stones, we see new ways to derive these same signatures. So for example, the, the planetary metal of Venus is copper. So copper-rich minerals are going to have a very Venusian kind of energy, are going to lend themselves very well to that kind of working. Um, but we might also see something like, um, you know, if we want to connect to um, you know, the, the elements of, of fire, then we might look for things like igneous rocks that are formed by, by molten fiery stone um, congealing. And um, there are so many ways we can find these kind of correspondences that it's, it's super helpful um, to know a little bit of mineral science. The other way that it has helped me is by understanding um, the sort of interaction between consciousness and the outside world. You know, if we look to things like quantum physics, um, 
uh, hologram theory, we find models by which we can better understand magic. And they're just that, they're models, they're metaphors. I'm not saying they explain magic, you know, in a black and white kind of way, but um, it's helpful to have a map of the territory in, in which you are traversing, as long as we don't confuse the map for the territory itself. And so science has been a way that I can, I can really um, see how the laws of cause and effect are, are relating to one another and how this tiny little action I've got, like lighting a candle or meditating on a crystal, has real world um, effects that ripple out from it. Wow, it, it really, it sounds almost alchemical. Um, you know, I, I definitely have derived some inspiration, we'll say, from alchemy. I'm not a, a formal student of it. Um, you know, the alchemical arts, the hermetic teachings are very close to my practice. Uh, I'm, I'm a member of the Temple of Witchcraft, which is co-founded by Christopher Penzak, Adam Sartwell, and Steve Kenson. And, you know, first and foremost, many of us in the tradition describe ourselves as hermeticists or hermetic witches. Um, because those hermetic teachings that are derived from the alchemical traditions are are kind of the the core of our our practice. We're a tradition of practice rather than a tradition of dogma. So um, you know we go out and we experience these these laws, these sort of fundamental rules that help shape the world, help us understand how the world is shaped. Might be a better way to put it. Um, so yeah, I I do think there's an alchemical element to my work. Yeah, one thing that's so exciting about metaphysical studies is that there's always something else you could be interested in. <laughs> oh, for sure. So you have a book coming out in February. Another book. This will be book number seven, correct? Um, this one will be book number six. Okay. I, I am hard at work on book number seven. Oh it, my it's god! It's not done yet. You're a crazy person. That is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> So the book is called Crystal Basics, and I have included the Barnes & Noble pre-order link in the show notes. Uh, and the title really speaks for itself, but what can you tell us and what can we expect from this title? So, you know, I think most people, when they approach uh, a topic and start writing about it, they start at sort of the beginner level and work their way up. And I kind of did the opposite. Um, I started with something really deep and esoteric that was really more for me. Like I had to prove to myself I was capable of writing. And that's where my first book called The Seven Archetypal Stones really came from. But then in all my interactions with the public, um, working in an occult bookstore, working with, you know, people in, in expos, in workshops, one-on-one -on -one consultations, I, I realized that um, there is a need in the market for a really... Um, good beginner's book that is part crystal encyclopedia, sort of a directory of stones um, with you know, tangible but succinct descriptions of, of what they can help us with. It's also a really good how-to manual. Most of the time we get either the how-to guide, these are ways to use crystals, or we get the dictionary and very seldom do we get a, a pretty healthy amalgam of the two. So that's, that's kind of what drove the book. Um, it kept getting longer and longer as I was planning it, um, which is a, an ongoing theme in my life. Uh, originally, I was aiming for maybe about 100 crystals in, in the director, and we've ended up with 200. Um, and <laughs> yeah, you know, just just double the number. No big deal, right? Um, uh, but it, it's going to have a great intro on how and why crystals work, the science, as well as the sort of uh, spirit of how 
crystals do what they do, looking at their composition, their formation, their structure, helping you decode what crystals do. So if you, let's say you come up with a weird rock like plumbogamite that you can't find in any metaphysical books whatsoever. If you can Google what it's made out of, the, the, sh the, the shape of its crystal structure and the formation process by which it was made, then you can figure out exactly what it's going to do for you. Um, and then um, it'll have uh, how-to practical guides for things like making elixirs with recipes for them, crystal grids with diagrams to help you kind of create. Same for, for layouts and meditations and other ways that you can work with stones. So um, I really wanted this to be so practical. So it was like an all-in-one kind of manual to get you on your journey. I've never seen that book. And that's what they say. If you're looking for a resource and you can't find it, it's your job to write that book. <laughs> uh, absolutely. This is the book I wish I'd found early on in my crystal journey. Yeah, um, it's going to be widely used. Thank you. <laughs> so how can people follow your work and uh, what's your social media and any other last minute plugs? Sure. Um, well, um, you can find me as the luminous pearl on most things. So facebook.com slash the luminous pearl, Instagram, I'm the luminous pearl. Um, I've also got a website, which is the luminous There's a theme here. Uh, but yeah, feel free to reach out if anyone's got questions related to, to especially crystals and, and Reiki. Those are kind of like my two mainstays of my public practice. Um, you know, feel free to, to connect with me. I love interacting. Um, I travel a lot. So this, this coming year, I'm, I'm looking to head to the Southwest for the first time, the Midwest for the first time. I'm going to go back up to New England, which has um, become sort of an, an annual tradition for me. Uh, we've got the new book coming out early in the year, so there's going to be a lot of fun touring with that and, and really bringing those teachings to light for everybody. Um, the, the only other thing I guess I really have to say is stay tuned for more books because I am a crazy person and I have, I have a whole bunch more planned. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Nicholas. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Likewise. Thanks for having me on the show. And thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Stay mystic, witches. Be sure to subscribe to Mystic Witch on any of your favorite platforms. And you can show your support by contributing monthly at anchor.fm or on our Patreon page. Follow us on social media to hear exclusive audio clips from our guests at Mystic Witch Podcast.